Good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning uh, just to enjoy God together and worship, to hear from God together. And uh, it really is a privilege to be able to open His Word and to know Him and to learn from Him. That's my prayer for us this morning. And if you're new here and we haven't met, my name is Rusty. Really glad that you're here. Uh, We're we're continuing in a series that we started at the beginning of the year through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, maybe you've been around church long enough to to know that Genesis is the first book of the Bible. The word Genesis literally means beginnings or origins. And uh, maybe you've, uh, you've missed the beginning of conversations or missed the beginning of movies and uh, are aware of how, be- how important the beginning of any story is to really understand the story. And that's no different with the Bible, which is the story of God's relationship with us in the world He has made. And the beginning then is so critically important to understand, to build a foundation that's going to help us um, understand and answer all those big questions. Who is God? Who are we? How do we relate to Him and to one another and to this world. And so, these opening chapters really address some of those big questions and give us the beginnings of everything. And if you want to know what something is or why it is, you got to go back to its beginning. You got to ask its creator, its founder to know what it is. And, And marriage is no different. So, at the beginning of the Bible, we get the beginning of marriage. We find that marriage is an institution made by God for His purposes, for good purposes. And so if you were here last week, we began to explore God's design for marriage. And I promised you that there was going to be a second sermon on marriage, and some of you came back. So thank you. Thank you. Um, We'll see if at the end of this you're glad that you came. But, um, you know, I think that we are... Uh, I hope, here to hear from God. And that's why we're here, and that's why we're not at home watching the news or reading self-help books. Uh, It's because we want more than our wisdom. We want more than the world's wisdom. We don't think that's enough. We want God's wisdom. And we want God's wisdom for marriage, for those of us who are married or might be married or know people who are. Um, And so, I had in mind to, to preach kind of this, this second message on marriage. Really, it came from a question that was submitted a number of weeks ago. I had already kind of had in mind to, to, to address this this morning, but then I saw this question and it kind of confirmed, yeah, let's talk about this. Maybe you don't know, there's a question box at the Resource Center where you can, there's little slips of paper if you have any question about anything in the first 11 chapters of Genesis that confusing or you just want to know more about, I'd love to hear that question from you so that as we go through this, you know, we're actually bringing the Bible into your situations to address your questions. And so, somebody um, left this question. They said, it is said that women are subservient to men from this verse. And the verse they're referencing is in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, you know, there, there is, well, I think it's probably that verse we looked at a bit last week where God looked at the man. He had not yet made the woman. He said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so, God made a woman. It is said that men are subservient to men, uh, to women are subservient to men from this verse, and that the reason for that is a that the man was created first, and b that the man was asked to name the animals. Question: How could God have asked the woman to name the animals along with Adam if she wasn't created yet? And also, if the order you are created matters, then using that theology, then the woman is lesser than and subservient to animals as well as man. Please explain. 
<laughs> okay, good question. I don't know if you're someone who has read that part of the Bible or maybe other passages in the Scriptures that speak about husbands and wives, and, and this type of question has come to you. Essentially, the question this person is asking is, has God designed in marriage a distinction for the way that husbands and wives are to relate to one another? Is there a unique role for husbands and wives in the context of marriage? That's essentially this question. And if there is, what is it and what does that actually mean? That's a great question. It's a really important question, especially to those of us who find ourselves in marriage or who will find ourselves in marriage. And so I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm flying on a plane to Phoenix, and I'm gone for a week. And so when I was building the sermon series, I tried to find some way of making sure this sermon fell on next Sunday when Howard had to preach it, but I just couldn't quite work that out. So uh, I thought, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. And in fact, you know, I'm happy to do this because um, I've been here seven and a half years, I don't recall ever preaching kind of directly on this question. I've, I've maybe alluded to this, made reference to it here or there, but I've never really spoken to it directly. And there's probably three reasons why I, I might not have or might not want to. And, and the first is, it's controversial. Anytime, we know, especially in this day and age, anytime you're talking about gender in any way, it is controversial, right? And, I, and I'm not somebody, I don't know if you believe this or not, I don't like controversial things. I'm not drawn to controversy. I shy away from it. I'm conciliatory in my nature, in my approach. I don't like to make waves. Um, and I realize anything that speaks to gender is controversial, not just in the world, but, but in some ways in the church. And so that second reason why I, I might want to avoid that is just it can be divisive. It can be divisive because there are Christians that, that and, and, and you, you likely know this, that have strongly held convictions on both sides of this question. They maybe have different answers to this question that they, um, they would believe arise from the Scriptures. Uh, and I really care about the unity of the church. I really care about the unity of this church. It matters a lot to me. It matters a lot to God. But unity is not uniformity, right? There are things that we need to be uniform about. We have to hold in common to be one church. Those things are in our statement of faith. If you haven't read them, you can go to the website, newlifestonal.com, and you can actually read our statement of faith. And if you want to belong to this church, those are the things that we feel are, are, are central enough uh, as Christians that we need to hold them in common to be one church. And then there are other things, secondary things, that people in this room are going to have a variety of opinions or perspectives on. And that's okay. There is room. There is room for different understandings and on, on these secondary things that do not need to hinder our unity. And I know fine Christians in this church and elsewhere that have a different perspective on this question, might arrive at a different answer. And that's okay to disagree on that, I think. Um, and we can disagree without being disagreeable and without being divided. And I know our world, it's just, it's just the impulse of our world, right? And we have to be really careful. Our, our, our world is quick to draw conclusions. It's quick to make critiques. It's quick to draw judgments. It's quick to impugn motives. And as Christians, we have to be really slow to do those things, right? We need to treat one another with grace, seek to listen, seek to understand, and then always to give one another grace. So it's controversial, it's divisive. For some, it's really personal. You know, there's some of you in the room, and, and if not you, you know people who've had uh, experiences that would be maybe painful or damaging with, with um, how um, this might have been practiced 
maybe in their marriage, in their home as children with their parents, in the church that they belonged to or do belong to. I remember a conversation I had years back with a woman who, and, and, and she was fully aware of, of my, my own personal conviction, and I guess just to kind of tip my hand here, just you're, hold, you're kind of holding your breath. Um, my own personal conviction is that uh, from, from the Genesis account onward through the Scriptures, that God in His good design for marriage has created unique roles and responsibilities, distinctions in the way husbands and wives are to relate to one another, and that's good, and it's for the flourishing of marriage and for each person in it. So that, so that is my conviction. We'll, we'll talk a bit about that. And this person knew that, but she said to me um, a few things that I can recall. She, she, she said, I suppose if I was here with my husband, if we had disagreement, you would take his side because he's the man. And I thought, that's interesting because I wouldn't. I wouldn't just automatically take the man's side. I, I wonder where that's coming from. I remember saying, I suppose you would believe him and I thought to myself, well, well, that's interesting because I wouldn't believe the man because he's a man any more than I would believe the woman. Um, in fact, and, and just, just to caution any of you men, if you think you're going to come and get like a sympathetic ear from me in something, okay, my bent would be, if I'm going to err on some side, I'm, I'm just going to err on being a little harder on the guy. This is my bent, okay? And, and, and I actually think it's a bent that's coming from my understanding of this. Um, so I was a little surprised kind of when I, I heard her say that because I, I thought to myself, well, that isn't, that isn't true. I heard her say, I, I suppose that you believe that, that he can hear from God better than I can. I thought, I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I don't believe that, that, that that's true at all. Each Christian, male or female, has one mediator between themselves and God, and that is the man Jesus Christ. One spirit, one faith. And so I was surprised by that, and she was kind of surprised by my response, and we were surprised with one another, but then as I heard more of her story, I got to realize, oh, yeah, this is a person who's had experiences, who's had experiences where this has been practiced in ways I would consider distorted, damaging, by people who practice these things in, in, in either misunderstanding them or intentionally misusing them to abuse and so that conversations and with others, it got me thinking, for that reason, because it's controversial and divisive and, and, and personal, those are not reasons to not talk about it. Those are reasons to talk about it. Because silence will just be filled by a vacuum where, with, uh, with distortions, with maybe unhealthy and unbiblical perspectives. It will be filled with misunderstandings and misuses and abuses. And so it is important. And after all, all of this is the Word of God. All of it is God's wisdom. We should seek to understand the whole. So, we want to address that a little bit this morning. Last week, if you were here, we, we talked about how man and woman are equal but not the same. Equal but not interchangeable. And so coming back to, to, to uh, Genesis 2.18, God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. If you were here last week, you would remember that that word suitable literally means according to his opposite or according to the opposite. So it would be like um, it's something that's of the same nature but kind of a mirror image, like a left hand and a right hand, right, that fit together, or like a knife and a fork, right? God looked at the man and said, there's a knife. He's not alone. It's not good to be a knife alone. He said, I, he doesn't need another knife, okay? He doesn't need two knives. He needs a fork, a knife, 
and a fork. Alike, working together, but, but different. And so God made the woman a helper. That word helper is a word more often than not used of God. It's not a word that re- represents kind of a, a weakness, but, but a strength. And so God made a woman with a man. And you see here in um, the very opening words where God makes the human beings At the end of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 and 28, it says, God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female. He created them and God blessed them and He said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So when God made human beings, He made no human being generically. There is no way to be a human being other than to be a male human being or a female human human being, okay? And only together in God's perfect design as male image bearers and female image bearers, together we represent the, um, more the, the fullness of, of, of the character of God, reflecting the character of God to one another and into the world. We are a team, equal but not interchangeable, equal in essence, nature, value, and dignity, And so God makes them male and female, and He says, God bless them, and He said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And so He talks about them as if they have a job together. They're a team. They're partners. So in Genesis 1, you have this kind of like 30,000-foot view of God's creation of human beings, a man and woman. And then in Genesis chapter 2, He gets a little more, more detailed. He zooms in, takes more time to kind of describe God's design and the creative process, and we might help us understand a bit more what God has in mind in us, how we might, how we are to relate to one another. And so God, in Genesis chapter 2, we find God makes the man. He says, the Lord took the man and He put the man in the garden of Eden to, to work it and to take care of it. And then the Lord God commanded the man. He said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God gave the man one commandment. Hey, you got this beautiful world, this beautiful garden, lots of beautiful fruit. There's just one thing, one rule. There's this one tree, the knowledge of the good and evil. You are not to eat from that. So God gives them the command to the man while the man is still yet alone. It's only after that the Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So then maybe you know how the story goes. The man, the God puts the man to sleep and he takes a rib and he makes a woman and then, um, which is, is kind of interesting. Why does God choose a rib? In this, is there any significance to that? Um, maybe, I don't know, the, the, the Puritan writer Henry, uh, Matthew, his name Henry, Matthew Henry, he was kind of speaking about this idea of God taking the rib of the man, um, and, he, and he kind of noted there that the woman was not made out of the head to top him, nor out of the man's feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I don't know if that's kind of what God had in mind, but I think that's, I like that. And so God makes the woman, and then the next verse, God describes marriage. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were naked and unashamed. And you have this picture of this beautiful intimacy, spiritual, emotional, physical intimacy and harmony between in, in, in marriage, in this first marriage. 
And that didn't last very long. In Genesis chapter 3, maybe you know how the story goes. The serpent comes uh, to, to the woman, to Eve, and tempts her to eat this forbidden fruit. And um, she does. And the man eats it. And they both disobey God. And God, they fall into sin. And God comes and He pronounces judgment on them because they have broken His command and he pronounces kind of the curse or the consequences on them that they will have to bear because of what they have done. And he, he describes that to the serpent and to the woman and to the man. And this is a part of what God says um, here in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, I believe it is. God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. There's God's command. He said, I commanded you, Adam, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. Was, it, was the problem here that the man listened to the woman? The woman is desiring the man. The man's going to, what in the world is this talking about? Interestingly, in, in the very next um, uh, chapter, in Genesis uh, chapter 4, after the, Cain kills his brother Abel, and we'll get there in a few weeks, God comes to Cain and He says to Cain in chapter 4, verse 7, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's the exact same phrase. That's not coincidental. It desires to have you, and you must rule over it. Okay, so sin desires to have you. That's not a good thing. Sin desires to control you. So when God said to the woman, from now on your desire will be for your husband, he, he, He's describing kind of this desire to control, and the man uh, is kind of uh, ruling over, desire to rule. And, and whatever it is, it's, it's a picture of a disrupted relationship, a ruptured relationship that had been harmonious and now has been broken. What does that mean? For some people, they, they will look at this and, and see like that's the point where distinction comes into the picture, right? It's after mankind sins, and, and uh, there's, there's the brokenness in the relationship um, where, where we see men and women relating to one another in, in, in different ways. That's where the distinction begins. It's there. And then Jesus came in the gospel. He came to kind of return to that state, to undo that. And, and, and so in, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul will, will say, there's no longer in Christ, there is no longer um, Greek nor Jew, neither rich nor slaves nor masters, neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ, right? And, 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 they, and they might understand what Jesus has done in the gospel is kind of a returning to before the curse, before there was any distinction in the way that they related to one another. Other people will look at this account and say, no, what's being described here is not the creation of any differences in the way man and woman are, to, are relating to one another in the context of marriage, but it's describing the corruption of it. That no longer will they do that in the right way to serve one another, but it will be not, no, no longer now will those roles be used for the other, but against the other. And people who would look at um, that in that way 
um, would look back in Genesis chapter 2 and see there maybe some insight into God's design for how the husband and the wife are to relate to one another in the context for marriage. So what might that look like? Is there any basis for that? Because the question just said, if God made the animals before man, does that mean animals are more important than the man because God made the man before He made the woman? And I don't know that just the order of God's creation is decisive in answering that question, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 will speak to the order there as if there's some significance to that. But I think coupled alongside the order of creation, what what I find significant here is the order of command or God's counsel. And so, like I said a few minutes ago, God makes the man, and then it's after He's made the man, before God makes the woman, that He gives to man the one command. Okay, he gives them kind of the, the instruction to Adam, and then God creates the woman. And then at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, the serpent goes to the woman. He goes to Eve and said, did God really say you'd, you don't need to eat from any, any tree? And, and she knew better. She knew the command. She said, no, we can, we can eat from anyone. It's just this one. And then Satan continues to try to tempt her to deceive her, and ultimately, she took the apple. It's, or, what, apple? Does it say it's apple? Why do we say apple? This fruit of this tree, the Bible says she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. There's that word again, desirable, right? Possessing some, possessing, instead of trusting God's wisdom, possessing wisdom for myself. Myself being able to determine the difference between right and wrong instead of leaving, trusting God's judgment in that which is right and wrong. And so she takes and she eats. And where is Adam? Well, you find here. It says that when the woman took the fruit and ate of it, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. So, so where, where is Adam? Adam is standing right beside her. This is the picture. The serpent comes. There's the man and the woman working together because that's what they're supposed to do. God said, hey, work together. And he comes, and, and the serpent comes to Eve and, and tries to deceive, to tempt her. And ultimately, she does, and she eats, and she gives to her husband who's right beside her, and he does the same. And I think that's very interesting, that there is Adam right beside her. And then after they fall into sin, God comes looking for them to give an accounting. And, and it says, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. It was her fault. Here's the first blame game. It, w- it wasn't me, it was her. And then God comes to her. It wasn't me, it was a serpent. Right? But I find it interesting that God comes to Adam and kind of knocks on his door first to give an accounting, and he will to the woman, but he comes to Adam first. And I, you, you see this order here, which I do not think is insignificant. God creates the man, gives man the, the, the instruction, creates the woman, man shares that with the woman. The, the serpent comes to the woman, the man is passive, he does nothing, he does not intervene. God comes and asks the man, what happened? And so it would cause Paul to say in Romans chapter 5, in describing Jesus as the second Adam, who undoes what the first Adam did, who did what he failed to do. This is how Paul says it in um, 
Romans. Do we have Romans 5 there, Christian? Maybe I jumped ahead. There it is. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in the same way death came to all people because all sinned, dot, 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 that's verse 12. What I want you to see there is Paul says death came into the world through one man. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Adam. And then verse 19, for just as though the disobedience of the one man, he's talking about Adam, the many were made sinners, so that also through the obedience of the one man, he's talking about Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And so when Paul kind of wants to diagnose what went wrong first, he talks about, he talks about the one man. Here. The one who has given uh, a responsibility And so some, in, in just kind of seeing this pattern here, see in this maybe some allusion to this responsibility that God has, this distinction of responsibility within marriage between the way a husband and the wife are to relate to one another. And, and we're going to now jump to Ephesians 5 to just unpack that a little bit, okay? Because Genesis 2 is interesting. How is this described in other places? And, and this morning, what I just want to say, my primary concern isn't to convince you of any sort of distinction necessarily within roles in marriage so much as it is to correct, uh, to, to properly understand what that might mean if there is any, and to correct any misuse or abuse of any distinction that someone believes is there because that happens and that's tragic. So, if you don't still have your Bibles at Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to turn there because that's where we're going to stay for the rest of our time here. And we looked at this a little bit last week where we talked about how this really depicts the most beautiful expression, this picture of marriage here because Paul is telling us that marriage isn't just about a man and a woman loving one another. He, he quotes that verse from Genesis chapter 2 where God establishes marriage when he says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. What he's saying is that verse, marriage, is actually about something bigger, is, is a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. God, the marriage is God's picture for that higher relationship. That is its deeper purpose. And so we touched on that a little bit last week, and Paul is going to show us now that the way the husband and the wife relate to one another in the context of the marriage is a dramatization of this picture, a parable of, of Christ and, and in relationship with His church. And so someone has written it this way, the previous and higher purpose of marriage and a husband and wife's role in it is, a, uh, is to teach a, a theology lesson about Christ and the church. I say the previous purpose because God didn't design marriage and then after that designed to, to, to send Christ to save a people and then just realize that he could use the first um, marriage to teach us about the second, Christ in the church. Rather, God decided to send His Son into the world to save a people. Then He designed marriage to picture this previous and higher truth. He wanted a common grace sign embedded in the DNA of creation itself so that people from every tribe, tongue, and language could see it. So what He's saying, and I think what Paul is showing us in these words here 
is that a husband is to relate to a wife the way the church and the, and the Christ and the church relate to one another. This is a part of God's design in marriage, in this unique relationship, and it's not like other relationships. I, I just want to note here, he isn't talking about the way women relate to men. Outside of, he, he's talking, because his picture is, is the marriage picture. He's not, he's not, he will never talk about women submitting to men and men leading, having authority over women. He, the Bible never talks in those terms because his picture to proclaim this, to show this to the world is marriage. It's not the workplace. It's not the social setting. It's not those other places. It's in marriage. And so he will talk about the husband and the wife. And this is why he says in verse 22, husbands, survive to your wives, submit to your own husbands, not to that person's husband. Right? This is not wives submit or women and men. This is this unique relationship. And I think it's really important to note that because he's talking about the uniqueness of the marriage picture and, and what it means. And it's really important that we start in verse 21 because sometimes people want to start in verse 22, which talks about wives submitting to their own husbands as to the Lord. And, and it's better to start at verse 21. 21. And I think Paul, in his wisdom, he thought, I don't want people to misunderstand what this is going to mean here. So in verse 21, he begins by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's talking to husbands and wives here. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, as Christians, this is the, 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 as husbands and wives who, 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 who revere the Lord, okay, there's, there's a certain mutuality that you are supposed to have in marriage, a certain attitude that you are to bring. There's this, there's this mutuality where you are to serve one another. What I'm, what I'm about to describe to you are ways that you are supposed to serve one another. It's really important to know that because as he's now going to talk about the distinction between um, Christ, the, the man as Christ and the, and, the, and, and the wife as church, he doesn't want people to misunderstand that. So when he says, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, he's not, he's not saying that in such a way that it negates the difference, but so that we properly understand what that does and doesn't mean, what that does and doesn't look like. So he begins by talking about this mutual attitude of service to one another. And, and then he addresses wives first and then the husbands. And I'm, I'm going to speak to men here first a little bit or, or about the men uh, because Paul spends most of the time here speaking to the husbands. What does he say in verse 25? He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow. Men, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands are to pattern their, their role after Christ. And, and what was Christ like? Christ, um, it talks about in a few verses later how Christ feeds and cares for his body. And here's like the shepherding care. It's almost like it's a pastoral role. It's like, he feeds, he's about protecting and nourishing and, 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 and strengthening those, your Christ and his church and the husband to his wife.
Think of the tenderness of Jesus. Think of the care of Jesus. Like in a few minutes, we're going to take this together. Like think of that. Jesus went up on the cross. Why? Jesus, we really need you. Come, I'm desperate. I need help. All right, if you promise to do this for me, I'll do that for you. It's like, we were going our own way. God looked down for us in love, and He sent His Son, and His Son came, and He went to that cross, and His love preceded our love for Him. Isn't that, isn't that what John said in 1 John? We love because He... We love because He first loved us. Whose love was first? Christ's love was first. You only love Christ because He loved you first. He didn't come with a sword and say, you better or else. He came and He won us by His love. Didn't He? You don't follow Christ because you have to. You follow Christ because who He is and what He's done. Because it's good, because He loves you. Because He feeds you, because He nourishes you. He cares for you and He protects you. He is gentle and He's tender. He wooed you with His love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I think what Paul is saying here is, husbands, you are uniquely called by God in playing the role of Christ to be the loving initiator of the well-being of your home. That's, that's kind of the best way that I can frame it. You are called to be the loving initiator of the well-being of your marriage, your home, because Jesus took the initiative. He took the initiative, right? And husbands, I, I really believe that we are called to ensure, it's our job to ensure that our wife and our family have what they need. Not that she doesn't have a role. We'll come to that, of course. We're a team. We work together. But there's a unique sense in which the husband is the initiator, just as Christ was and is. And, and sometimes as men, we, just, we tend to think of that in physical terms, maybe bringing home the bacon or, you know, I'm the guy with the bigger muscles, so I open the pickle jars or... It's always the happiest moment in my life when I'm called to open a pickle jar. <laughs> or when there's that sound outside the bedroom at night and, and you're the one that gets up, right? I mean, we, we, we tend to think of it in kind of like that physical protection and strength, but, and, and I think that's a part of it, but, but it's more than that. I think Paul has in mind here a certain sort of spiritual initiative, to ensure the spiritual well-being of our wife and our children. And, and I, just, I really truly believe this. There are far too many passive men. And we'll get to domineering men in a moment. Because you can fall off that horse in both directions. But there are far too many passive men in the church. And some of you, you're in the room. I mean, none of us are perfect. But there's far too many men that have just left kind of the, the emotional and spiritual engagement in their home completely in their wife's court for her to deal with. And, and, and we kind of just, um, we'll get involved to the degree that we're asked, but we'll just kind of take the cue from someone else. And I, I think, I see this bent, I think, in men like, 
I, even in dating relationships, I think there's this tendency like the guy, he just kind of does whatever and it's up to the woman to go, hold on here, oh, let's stop, let's stop, I'm not comfortable with that. It's up to the woman to kind of, to have to, to, have to like build those, those boundaries in, in, instead of kind of, I, I think that's kind of the, unfortunately the norm, instead of, instead of the men initiating that and going, hey, let's talk about this. It's important to me that we are both comfortable. And I think that's true whether it's in that type of relationship or maybe, maybe what that looks like is kind of just the spiritual life of the family at home. Well, whether it's, you know, ensuring that the kids get prayed with before they go to the bed or there's a time as a family to open the Bible and do devotions together. And that should never only just be the, the man that's doing the praying or the man doing the leading. But, but, I, but I believe a man has a unique responsibility here, just as Christ, to be that loving initiator, to ensure that it happens. Men, you need a moral and spiritual vision for your family. Because I, I believe just as Jesus came to Adam in, in Genesis 2 before he came to you, I believe God will knock on your door first. And I know there's many men, they feel inadequate in that. Because many men, they maybe have wives that, that are, they, they are more spiritually mature. They are more wise uh, spiritually and, and, and knowledgeable and all of that. And it might be easy just to say, well, that's not my thing, that's her thing. And, and, and you would be a fool, we'll get there, you would be a fool not to learn from and utilize your wife. But that also doesn't mean that you're off the hook. It is your responsibility to kind of grow and to ensure that you, your family's needs are met emotionally, spiritually, physically. You are the loving initiator of the well-being of your home. And I think there's something uniquely powerful about that when a man is a loving initiator of his home. I think there's a cascading effect of blessing. And so they're just, they're, they're far too many passive men and that's not good for, for anybody. It's certainly not good for their home, for their wives, for their, for their kids, for the church. But if it's possible for a husband to be dormant, to neglect their role, it's also possible for a husband to be domineering and to abuse their role. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of that in marriage. Maybe you had a, a father that was like that. Maybe you were in a church where you saw that and even had leaders like that. And I've had conversations with people where that's the case, and that's tragic because we are to, husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. There is no room for arrogance. There is no room for selfishness. There is no room for authoritarianism. It doesn't mean men call the shots. There's a big difference between being in charge and leading the charge. Okay? That, those words came to me there. Like, I, I like it when things kind of like fit. Maybe it's a pastor thing, but I thought I, I like the picture of that. Being in charge is the general in some safe position somewhere, moving pieces around, moving people around in battle. Leading in charge is the guy that's on the, hor on the horse at the head with others beside him, but, but, he, but he, he's the first one in. There's a difference between being in charge and leading the charge. So... so Know this, because this is where men who, and who, who, have, 
who have believed in this distinction and have wanted to grab onto that have, I think, often, whether intentionally or unintentionally, misunderstood and misused that to suppress their women and to harm their wives. So let me hear this. There is no place for unilateral decisions by, by a man. Men are not called to dictate, but to initiate. Jesus is the initiator. And what did He initiate? Well, to provide for His church so that they might become a radiant church. What is radiant? Glowing, strong, beautiful, developed, reaching their potential. How, how many guys think it just means I call the shots, you do what I say, I'm threatened by your strength? Jesus isn't threatened by the strength of His church. He loves the strength of His church. When He sees His church grow and develop their gifts and be fruitful, it brings a big smile to His face. It's what He wants. Shame on any man who feels threatened by their wife's strength. Or, or, or chooses to suppress it or to not use it to the advantage, to his advantage and the advantage of the whole. So there is no place for unilateral decisions to dictate. We are called to initiate. And so, you know, in my house, oh man, I don't know what I would do without my wife's wisdom. Like my wife is wise in many ways, kind of in ways that I'm not. And I'm, if you could peel back the walls of my house and see what, see what this looks like, it's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, trying to find consensus, right? It's not about making decisions. It's like, oh, I think, man, I think you're responsible to make sure the conversations happen. Make sure you ask the questions. Make sure there's dialogue, right? Involve, listen, discern together, seek consensus. Not just doing something unilateral. A man would be a fool to not ask for his wife's input, to not seek her wisdom, and to not listen and I just, I gain so much from my wife. And there are times where I just, I, I say like, I think we need to defer to you, to, to your wisdom on that. If this is properly practiced, I guess is what I'm saying, uh, it, it's almost hardly noticeable. I think some people have a picture of a guy who's walking two feet in front of his wife or maybe on a couch in a setting where she's kind of meek and mild and he does the talking for the two of them. Shh, hun, shh, shh, shh. I'll do the talking. Oh, hun, no, it wasn't that way. It was this way. That's not the picture Paul gives us here. That's not, that's not the loving initiation of Jesus Christ. If somebody says he definitely wears the pants in the relationship, then he probably isn't loving his wife as Christ loves the church. I guess is what I'm trying to say. So husbands, as we think of like be this call to, to be like Christ to the church, you are called to be the loving initiator of the well-being of your home. And the other thing I want to say is husbands are called to be the sacrificial servants of their home. I mean, everybody sacrifices, everybody serves in a home, in a marriage, we're teammates, we're partners. But, but look at Christ, Right? He sacrifices the most. He, he, his sacrifice is first. He lays down his life. He bleeds himself dry. Jesus would say in Matthew, you throw these verses up there from Matthew 20. 
when he's talking to his disciples, Jesus called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, so what it, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I came down, I took on flesh, I went to the cross to win for myself a people, to give you life, to make you strong. Jesus said, and you're going to be like that. Don't be like the rulers of the world. And this is, this is the problem. When we talk about power or authority or leadership, we, we have all these visions of the way that's practiced in the world, like it was then. It's like somebody using it to their own advantage privilege. A husband, when he thinks of leadership or authority, should never think of privilege, should, should think of servanthood. Responsibility. So Jesus, Jesus doesn't negate leadership. He doesn't, he doesn't negate authority. He just turns it upside down. He radically transforms it. He says, those that were at the top now, they're ruled over us, they're at the bottom, lifting up. And so Jesus displayed that before he went to the cross by getting on his knees in front of the disciples at the Last Supper, which we'll um, remember in a moment, and he washed the feet of his disciples. And they said, no, Lord, we should be washed. He's like, you have to know how it works in the kingdom of God. To lead is to serve. So to some, to the people of the world, and maybe to those, those men that think that being head, lead, whatever you want to call it, to have a unique role as initiator means to make sure that I get what I want. I'm going to go golfing when I want. I'm going to do what I want. As if, if there's only one piece left, he ensures he gets that piece of cake. Whereas, whereas what Jesus is showing us here is that, you know, husbands, if there's enough for everyone, you're one piece short, you ensure everyone else gets a piece of cake and you go without. That's what that looks like. Husbands are called to be sacrificial servants and nobody should sacrifice more for the good of his home in the husband. And tragically, it's not always, but it's very often the other way around. If you read those studies about the amount of hours worked, like most women these days do have jobs outside the home, right? So my, my and, and I just want to say when we're talking about roles in the Bible, it, it doesn't, this doesn't talk at all about who's supposed to cook, who's supposed to clean, child care, um, work. Like, that, that, that does, that's not even a factor. That, that's, that's not what this is about. Okay? But, but, you know, my wife started to work outside the home a couple of years ago, and now she had this big thing, time and energy, and we had to figure out what did that look like to kind of share the burden together in the home. And if you read stats, you will find that women do many, many more hours of work than the men in their homes on average because many of them are working outside the home and then they're cooking and then they're cleaning and maybe the ones putting the kids to the bed and they're doing all of these things while daddy's there watching TSN and looking at the newspaper. People, well, people don't look at newspapers anymore. Scrolling on the iPhone, right? 
What a tragic depiction. What a tragic reality. Husbands, you are called to be sacrificial servants. The Lord you represent gave up His life on the cross for His church. And that's what you're displaying in your love to your wife. Um, 1 Peter 3, 7 says this. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you to the gracious gift of life. Interesting things as heirs. What he's saying is God has given you, God has given your wife all the same things he's given you in every way. You have no advantage with God, right? You're both heirs of the same gift from God. Um, and, and true respect, she's the weaker partner, and, and I'm, it, that's almost certainly re- references uh, physical strength, because as much as some people today out in the world feel like it's for us to be equal means we, we can't acknowledge that there's any difference when there's obviously God has designed the, the male body to be strong. I mean, I, I realize there's exceptions to the rule. Those, I, when, I, when I was a kid in, in the church in Nanton, there, there, there was a, we had a woman in our church who was a provincial bodybuilding champion of Alberta. She would just pick up her husband like this, just carry him, carry him to the car, and it was, she was jacked, like, it's incredible. But, but if you wonder what, if you read that and you're troubled, what does that mean? It means like, it's like, hey, I gave you strength to protect, right? And so last summer, or, or last spring break, when Annika, my daughter, is doing her lifeguarding, Monday to Friday, during the day, down at the White Portage Place, downtown Winnipeg, you know, where there's lots of riffraff and it's kind of dangerous, and my wife feels uncomfortable having to park somewhere and walk my daughter to the car, and she says, Hudden, would you go? I just don't feel comfortable. It's easy for me to go, like, I, like let's do this 50-50. I did it yesterday. You do it, you do it tomorrow. Like, why? I don't, sorry, I just, it, it's easy for me not just to think of what the, the experience and recognize that there is a vulnerability there, that I maybe don't think of and maybe don't experience. It's my duty to protect. Okay, so Monday to Friday, I'm the one that I just built my schedule around. That. I drove Annika down. I parked somewhere cheap because I'm a cheap Mennonite. To walk some blocks. And I brought my wife there, or I brought my daughter there, and I picked her up. But, but it's the end here. So, that, so God says... Um, Treat them, treat them well so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Whew. So what that means is God, God, God cares so deeply about this, how husbands love their wives, that they do not mistreat, diminish, demean, abuse, belittle. That if, that if he sees husband doing that, he closes his ears to that guy. And, and I think, you know, that just shows us men, we... We, if, we see, if we see this taking place, if we hear or see other men demeaning, dishonoring, being selfish, abusing in some way their wives, you know, disrespectful talk at the workplace, you have a duty to stop that. You have a duty to speak. You know, I, I've said, who, who should be most troubled when, when a cop who's been entrusted a badge and a gun instead of serving and protecting harms. Who should be most troubled by a bad cop? A good cop. Not someone who doesn't believe in cops. 
a person who themselves has been entrusted with a badge and a gun and a sacred duty to serve and protect. There's no one that should be more troubled and upset when a, by a bad cop than a good cop. So too often this has been like the boys' club, right? They protect their own. No, that's not how this works, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So we're out of time. Wives, submit your husbands. The end. <laughs> yeah, we're out of time. So, um, so Daniel, next Sunday I'm gone. But that's it's funny how that works, right? Before we come to communion here, there's, I just want to take a couple of minutes um, just, just to speak to this. Men, in, in the role of marriage, the, 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 way, the way that they, they relate, they, they, are to, uh, they are like a copy of Christ. And the church is supposed to, or the, the bride is supposed to, the woman, the wife is supposed to represent the church and submit to her husband the way that the church submits to Christ. So what does it mean to submit, right? Submit to your husband as you do to the Lord. Wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Well, obviously, if you think everything means what he says you have to do, you didn't read that right. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, which means this is a woman who's submitting herself to the Lord. The husband does not replace Jesus Christ. He is a copy of Christ. He does not replace Christ. So where the husband departs from the leadership of Christ, she must submit to Christ. So, so what submitting doesn't mean is it doesn't mean you have to obey in everything, because he just said, submit to the husband as you do to the Lord. The husband's leadership does not triumph or replace Jesus' lordship. A, a wife does not have to submit to unbiblical counsel or commands. And hopefully this, hopefully, I mean, if this is done well, if this isn't, these are two people working together and, and, there's, and, there's, and there's just, there's almost always just consensus. But, but I just don't want to stop it, you know, without hearing, without you hearing that. To submit doesn't mean that you have to obey in everything, and it doesn't mean that you have to stay in every situation. There are women who are in abusive situations where marriage is being used as a weapon to harm them by the husband, tragically, instead of a blessing, a gift to them, and marriage is always, at times, is going to be hard. And we don't run from hard, but when marriage goes from hard to harm, when there is harm, submitting doesn't mean staying in an abusive relationship. It means you need to speak up and you need to get help. And if you need to separate, then that's what you need to do. But you need to speak up. You don't have to stay in an abusive situation because the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. What it does mean, I just in, in a statement really, is um, when he says, submit to your husbands in everything, we've already established that. Well, that doesn't literally mean he says that I got to do it because I submit to the Lord. It's talking about just like an attitude, a posture. 
If a husband's responsibility is to kind of lovingly initiate the well-being of the home, the woman is, is, um, is a participant in that, but is, but is ultimately kind of ha- has this posture of receiving that initiative and even encouraging the husband. It is, it, is, it is good and it is right and sometimes necessary for a wife to say, I need you to take more initiative. It's a posture of, of respecting and receiving that, this loving initiative in the relationship. And that cannot be forced or taken. Submission is something that's given. It's not taken. There, there's no other verb to kind of to take it from someone. It's, 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 it's a giving. It is, it is just as the husband loving is a gift, the wife submitting is a gift that she chooses to give. It cannot be compelled or forced. Jesus didn't come to compel or force us. He wooed us by his love. So for, uh, you know, like a husband to force physical intimacy from his wife is called what it, you know, it's called rape, right? And so for a husband to force or enforce, compel, um, submission is, is wrong. It's, it's abuse because it has to be freely given. It is an act of agency on behalf of the woman. It is not a negation of that it is, it is to be freely given, freely given. It takes two to tango. And that's all I'm going to say on that. May God, this is a glorious picture that He has given us. May God give us the ability to see the beauty and the glory in it. And may God give us the ability, wherever we find ourselves, uh, to play that role um, beautifully in such a way that it really shows the husband and the wife working together, submitting to themselves to one another in those ways to portray the glory of the love of Christ for His church, the glory of the gospel. So let's come to this table. And I feel like this is a very kind of appropriate act after we've just heard that, to come to this table where we receive the body and the bread, uh, the, the body of Christ and His blood shed for us. Um, so if you are sir, help me, helping me serve at the table, you can come up here and... Um, the worship team, you can come prepare to lead us as well. The Bible says, to all who believed in Jesus, to those who received Him, to those who believed in His name, God gave the right to become His children. And this is, this is the beautiful truth that this table represents, that Jesus has done it all. Through His body, He has done everything necessary to bring us into relationship with God, a relationship that we receive by faith. And so as you take this church, this is just a way of of acknowledging His Lordship over us as our Lord, as our head, and a way of just kind of submitting ourselves again to His love, to His leadership in our life, to His care, to His protection. And so... As we take this together, as the, as the bread is being passed, um, just, just take a moment to take that bread, to look at it, just to, just to reflect on what that means as the body of Christ broken for you, His love for you, and then just in your heart um, to worship Him and submit yourself to Him again afresh. So God, we thank You for Your Son. We thank You that He came. He humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we might live. We worship you.